Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. Well, it's Valentine's Day. Guys, I hope you have expressed your love to your significant other um, today. If not, you still got a few hours left before midnight and before you're in real trouble. So, so uh, praise God. I read this story of a man. He was driving through Southern California. He said, I stopped at a roadside stand that sold fruit, vegetables, and different crafts. He says, as I went to pay, I noticed a young woman behind the counter was painting a sign. Why the new sign, I asked. She said, my boyfriend doesn't approve of the old one. She said, and when I glanced up at what hung above the counter, I understood. The sign declared, local honey dates nuts. So, <laughs> and uh, praise God, hopefully your date is not a nut. And uh, I've known a few over the years, amen? Praise God. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2, the book of Revelation chapter 2, and I've been in a series on the priesthood of the believer, and I'm going to continue that on Thursday. And of course, we've been in the book of Revelation as a study on Thursday evenings, um, as the days ahead. And uh, we've been going through the book of Revelation and teaching out of it. But this morning I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I want to talk about the restoration of first love. And I want to talk about the restoration of first love this morning. Uh, Out of Revelation chapter 2, I want to read a few verses of scripture there to you. And uh, praise God. I personally believe that if God is going to send an awakening to our nation, our churches, and our cities, I believe that the awakening is not going to come through the expression of spiritual gifts or the expression of talents that God has given. I believe the awakening is going to come when people fall back in love with Jesus again in a very passionate way. And um, uh, we all remember, do you all... We all remember our first loves, right? I mean, we all remember the first time we fell in love, and uh, at least what we thought was in love. And um, I remember the first time I thought I was in love. I was in the sixth grade, and, um, and I fell in love with a little, a little girl named Cynthia Loren. She was a little Italian girl, and she had these really black curly hair, and man, she was cute. And uh, I knew I had no chance with her. Uh, but I was going to take a risk anyway. So at recess, I was going to show her how fast I was. And, uh, and as I was running to show her how fast I was, I ran into a concrete pillar and broke my nose. And blood was everywhere, and my mom had to come and take me to, to the doctor. And it was a horrible experience. And, uh, of course, you know... Uh, that didn't work out very well. Cynthia Loran went on to bigger and better things, I think. And, uh, but I got the better catch anyway. Amen. And, uh, and so, praise God. We'll be married 30 years on, November, on April 6th. Can you all believe that? Isn't that amazing? That she has put up with me for that long. And uh, 30 years. That's a long time, y'all. And it's a long time. And I still love her. I still love her as much today as I did then. 
You know, when you're in love, you do crazy things. And uh, we did some crazy things. We would wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning, and uh, we would meet at our church at 6 a.m. for 6 a.m. prayer. And we did that for a long time. And, uh, but just that first love, I woke up that early just to go to be, just so I could spend an hour or so, an hour and 15 minutes with her before she had to go to work or before we had to be at work. And, uh, and so every morning, and we would be out, um, our favorite place and the favorite thing to do when we were dating was, is we would go to a little restaurant, they're no longer in existence, I don't think, a little restaurant called the Chili Company. And the Chili Company had... Uh, had these waffle cheese fries that they would pile cheese on these waffle fries and we would share these waffle fries because we didn't have any money. And uh, uh, I was a school teacher at the Christian school and I was bringing home $105 a week. That's what my salary was, was $105 a week. But they did give me rent. I lived in the Timothy house, which is a ministry house. They did give me rent. So I guess it was a little... A little better than that, but that's all. That's all we had, and so we would share those cheese fries uh, together, and we would sit and talk till midnight, one in the morning, and then we would get up and go to prayer and be there by six a.m. And so, how many know when you're in love, you'll do a lot of crazy things? And so that wasn't crazy. Prayer is a good thing, but um, but I'll I'll never forget that we we had a wonderful time uh, doing that, and so. Um, Praise God. Book of Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I want to read a few verses of Scripture before we get into this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you are And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved, you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Let's pray. Father, bless your word this morning. I pray, God, that you'll help me to express what you have laid on my heart this morning. I pray, God, that you will help us to receive the word this morning into our hearts. And I pray, God, that you'll create a fresh passion in our hearts for God a fresh love for him. I thank you, God, for your goodness and for your mercy. And God, we pray that our love shall increase this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Praise God. Well, here, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we have um, uh, gone through, and as I went through chapter 2, I did not really get specifically into the churches because we've been basically focus on the events of the book of Revelation more so than the exegesis of every chapter and every verse. But this morning I want to take us back to chapter 2 and I want to take us back to Revelation 2 to the beginning of the section of the book of the Revelation which is described by John in chapter 1 and verse 19 
when he says this, when he says he has been told to write the things which, which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. John here is beginning to write the things which are. And so he's talking and he's writing a letter, the book of Revelation, these letters to the seven churches and these books. John uh, is writing to the churches that are in existence at the time that he is in exile on the island of Patmos. So John is writing to these seven churches in Asia, Asia that are in, in existence at the time that he's in exile. And he's writing to these churches about the things which are, are the things that are currently happening. Now the book of Revelation, uh, John's vision and writing will go to all seven of the churches. And there are individual letters to each of the churches, um, which all the churches will read what has been written individually about each church. The letters are brief, but before we look at the first letter that John had wrote to the church of Ephesus, I want us to see a couple of things, first of all. And when we talk about love for God, it's amazing. This past week when we were in North Carolina and we spent a day in Asheville at the CGIA conference, we had an opportunity to go to, go to dinner with the son of Lester Summerall. How many of y'all know who Lester Summerall is? Lester Summerall literally changed the world, and his ministry changed the world, and we had a chance to go to dinner with his son, Frank, and just to hear the stories of Brother Summerall and his love for God and his passion for people, and, uh, and God has spoken to his son to go redig the wells of the ministry of his father, to go to the cities and to go to the ministries where his dad preached and began to redig the moving of the Holy Spirit uh, in those areas. And so just to hear that passion and to hear that awakening in his heart, that love for God, it just stirred something in me. I thought, God, I want back that passion in my life to serve you like that again. I want that passion to see people saved, born again, washed in the blood of Jesus. I want a passion to see my family members know Christ and come to the knowledge of Jesus. But I want to, as we look at this, and before we look at this church that lost its first love, I want us to look at a couple of things. I want to give you a couple of uh, perspectives this morning as we look at this, and as we look at the, these, the, uh, the center of this church, as we begin to look at his writings to them, I want us to see a couple of things. One, I want you to see their primary association uh, their primary association. Understand that these seven churches were real churches. They weren't made up churches. These churches, these are real letters to real churches located in real cities uh, and real places. Um, and, and these are historical churches. And John here writes these letters. John, in fact, probably knew most of these churches and had been to most of these churches. He had visited them. He knew what was going on in them. So they are real churches. John is in exile and spoke to them about the realities of their congregation. What Christ had spoken to him to write, he was writing about the realities of what was going on in their congregation. 
each of these letters begin with some similarities. They all begin with the phrase, I know your works. And, uh, and each of them uh, says, I know your works, but each of them also was given a promise to those who were overcomers. And so um, he, each of these letters are tailored to each of these congregations, to each of these churches, and they are to be read in, the, in its own context. And so first of all, there's this primary association that's with all of these churches. Second of all, there's this personal application to these letters. That each of these letters, there's been given, in the letters, there's been given, they, they, there has been uh, uh, certain identities that have been uh, seen or have been written uh, of the types of, of specific to each of these churches. Each of these churches have a letter that's specifically tailored to them, and that particular letter also is, is a personal letter to that congregation and how they are to respond to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to them. And the great value of these letters is they identify the types of Christians that show up in churches in every church age. When you read these seven churches and they describe the things that are going on in these churches, we see that in these churches is a picture of Christians that show up in churches in every church age, even in our church age. And as you read the context of the letter, it may even remind you of a church or may even remind you of people are places that are described here in Revelation chapter 2. There's this personal application. There is a description that is given. Each church is being spoken to in the reality of who they are. But as you read the seven churches, you will see that many of these, these that operate in these churches and what you see in these churches, you have seen throughout the whole history of the church, you have seen these types of Christians show up in churches. And so as you read the context of these letters, it may remind you of churches. There may be church names that come to your mind as you read them. There may be, uh, there may be it may remind you of certain types of Christians. And the Bible here tells us the Lord is the one that searches these churches. And uh, uh, it reminds us that the Lord is the one who searches the churches. In Revelation chapter 1, it says that Jesus is seen in the midst of his churches with eyes of fire, it says. Looking through his church, looking at his church, searching the church's heart to see what they really are. In other words, in Revelation, Jesus is looking into these churches. He's in the midst of these churches. He's looking at their heart. He's seeing, he's bypassing what is in the natural, and he's looking spiritually in the heart of each of these churches. And he's seeing now, it's good to have the perspective of him to the head of the church that what's going on today, how many know it's good to know what Jesus thinks about the work of the body of Christ, isn't it? The problem we have today in modern churches, many of the problems could be solved by just reading the recommendations that the Lord makes to these seven churches in Asia Minor. If we will just take the recommendations that Jesus makes to these seven churches, half of the problems that we see in the modern church can be solved. 
in the midst of it. And all the church can read these letters that are contained in this book. It wasn't just one church that got the letter. All seven of them got it. And all seven of them got to see what was happening in the other seven churches. And some, they probably already knew what was going on. Many of the commentators on the book of Revelation, they say this. One commentator said this way. What Christ thinks of the church is what no pressing Christian should ignore. We're more concerned about what Christians think about what's important in the church. That's the reason why we have research centers like Barna, who tells us what Christians are thinking about the church, who tells us what people think about the church. But far more significant is the opinion of Jesus Christ himself. How many know it's more important what Jesus thinks of the church? And so we don't have to wonder here what he thinks. Here in this, these letters, he tells us what he thinks of the church. So there's the primary association of these churches. There is the, the uh, second, the application that these churches, the personal application that's given to each of these churches. But thirdly, there is this prophetic anticipation in each of these churches are letters to these churches. There's this prophetic Prophetic scholars have studied these letters to the churches and the condition of these churches and discovered that the seven churches really represent the seven ages of church history. They have seen that these churches could be placed as seven dispensations or seven categories of the church age throughout church history. I don't know if you're a student of church history, I love church history. I love studying church history. And, uh, uh, but as these scholars have studied, what they found is, is that throughout church history, there are time periods in church history that these specific churches could fit into that time period and that church could be represented through that time period. Matter of fact, this first church here that we're going to talk about, the church of Ephesus, represents the early church that, re, that is recorded for us in the book of Acts. The, Ephesus, the early church. The last church, Laodicea, the church that was scorned because it was neither hot nor cold, but the scripture says Jesus said they were lukewarm and they were spewed out of his mouth. That church is the church that will be on the earth when Jesus comes back to get and to take us home. And you can make up your own mind about that, about the lukewarm church. If we're living in the church age of the Laodicean church, the lukewarm age, there is some instruction for us this morning that the Spirit of God is saying to the seven churches. But let's begin to look at this this morning. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the destination of this letter. Where is the destination of these letters? And you find it in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Now, these letters are addressed to the angel or the messenger of the church of each of these churches. And you ask the question and say, does every church have an angel? Yes, every church has an angel, and it's the pastor. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's to the messengers or the pastors of these churches. These letters have been given to the pastors of these churches for instruction. And when we begin to look at this, and we begin to look at this first church, we see that the church of Ephesus was a cosmopolitan cultural city church. And we see that in this first letter that is written, we see that this is a most, one of the most prominent cities in the Roman Asia Minor uh, area. Ephesus was a, a, an extraordinary city. It was an extraordinary city. Matter of fact, the book of Ephesus was written to the church at Ephesus here, and, and it was one of the home of the seven wonders of the world. The seven, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple of Diana, uh, which was one of the great seven wonders of the world. It was a great cultural city. This temple of Diana was a theater of immorality in the midst of this city. Matter of fact, at this temple, they sold idols to be worshipped. At this temple, there was prostitution that took part as a religious uh, protocol or as a religious practice in the city. And this is interesting about the church at Ephesus because the church at Ephesus was started by Paul on his second missionary journey. You read about it in the book of Acts chapter 19. Paul spent three years there and, and then he wrote a letter uh, the to the Ephesians, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, and after Paul had left there, he established Timothy as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Matter of fact, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy specifically, and those letters were delivered to Timothy while he was the pastor there at Ephesus, there at Ephesus. It is likely, most scholars, it is likely John became the head of the church at Ephesus following Timothy's ministry there. And while he was living in Ephesus, that is where he was captured and arrested and had taken and was put on the island of Patmos. John knew this city. He served there. He was a head of the church there for a distinguished period of time. And so we see the destination of these letters. Number two, we see every letter has a description of Christ. Every one of these letters were given a description of Christ. All seven letters have this description of Christ. In other words, there is a focus on who he is to each of these churches. When we look at verse 1, uh, we see there, uh, these things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And so, each church, there's been this application or a focus on who Christ is. Applied his character to these churches. It says here, he, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven lampstands. In other words, it is saying he is the ultimate, he holds the ultimate authority in his right hand and that he, he walks among the church and holds control of the church. In other words, the description that John is giving of the church of Ephesus is that Jesus, he holds the seven stars in his right hand, which means he's in control. He is the final authority of all the earth, but he's walking in the midst of his church 
and he holds control over his church. I'm telling you this morning, the Pope is not the head of the church. I'm telling you, Jesus is still on the throne and still in control of his church this morning. He still holds all authority and sovereignty over all of the earth. He is in control this morning. And we can look at our world and say this world has gone crazy. And I agree with you, it has gone crazy. But nothing has removed Jesus from his throne. And he still desires to walk in the midst of his church and his body this morning. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is in the midst of them. Hallelujah. How many are thankful Jesus is here this morning? Hallelujah. It's a description of who he is. Why do you think the enemy has fought the assembling of ourselves together so much in this last year? Why do you think the devil doesn't want the church to meet? I'll tell you why. Because he knows when the church is together, Jesus is in the midst of the church. And so I'm thankful we're able to be together this morning and able to recognize the fact that his presence is here and he can walk among us this morning. And we should welcome his presence. We should come in on Sunday welcoming the presence of God. Rejoice that he'll be here. Because if two or three of us are here, he comes in the midst of us. He walks among us. He moves in and out of these aisles and moves on the hearts of those who need a touch from God this morning. I don't know about you, I need a touch from God every Sunday morning. I need him to be in the midst of my life. I need him to be in the midst of who I am and in everything I do in life. And so there's this, each letter has this description of Christ. Thirdly, what we see in these letters is we see the diagnosis of this church. We're going to see the diagnosis now beginning in verses 2 and 3. We begin to see this diagnosis of this church. All of a sudden, Christ begins to diagnose. He's walking in the midst of this church and he's diagnostically looking through the church and he's given, he's given this this diagnosis of the state of this church. I'm telling you that the Spirit of God can move throughout our church, and I believe there's a diagnosis that He has for us this morning. He can walk in the midst of us, and He began to see the things in us that are here that uplift Christ and those things that we need to improve on. Because He's in the midst of His church controlling his church, speaking to our hearts. And so in verses 2 and 3, we begin to see, verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and had patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. I want you to notice a couple of things about the diagnosis of the church at Ephesus. As we begin to look through this and begin to look at this, first of all, I want you to know this was a dynamic church. He said, I know your works. You know, sometimes we often uh, 
de-emphasize the importance of good works because we don't want to water down the importance of grace. But what happens is because we want grace to be prominent and we want grace to be understood, sometimes we de-emphasize the importance of works and the importance that works has on the body of Christ. This was a dynamic church. I'm not saved because of my works. I'm saved because of grace. But because I'm saved, because we're saved, because we belong to Christ, we should be stirred to good works in our life. We should be stirred up to good works. They were a worthy church. They were a church that was working. They were a church that was constantly working. You will find that a church that has a great understanding of grace will be a church that has many good works that go on through it. Because grace is prominent, good works follow grace. People who understand that grace abound in works for the Lord. I was saved for good works. I was saved to serve the Lord. The Word of God was speaking through, throughout all of Asia as a result of this church. Their good works was known throughout all of Asia. You say, well, how do you know that? All you have to do, jot down this scripture. Acts chapter 19, verse 10. All who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jew and Greek. In other words, Acts 19 tells us that when this church began, the wor- their works were known throughout all of Asia. That their good works were known. They were changing lives. They were living in power. There was grace that was found there. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all of Asia. How many know that a church that begins to win souls and begins to change lives and begins to preach the word, how many know that word will spread throughout all of a region? Churches can have influences on regions. They can have influences on areas. And so we see these good works that were being, it was a dynamic church. I know your works. It was also a dedicated church. He went on to say, I know, I know your labor. And you say, well, isn't that the same thing? It's a little bit different. They're not, they're, they're, there's a difference. Labor, the word labor here means work till exhaustion. The, the, the Ephesians were paying a price to serve the Lord. In other words, there was a huge price that was being paid for their dedication to the Lord. Not only was their works being heard throughout all of Asia and the good works were being done, they were working and enduring to the point of exhaustion is what the word means. Their labor, I know your labor, I know your exhaustion, I know your continued uh, dedication to the work of God. I'm telling you, any church that is effective has dedicated people that are dedicated to the work of God. There are times, I think, as a church that there should be, we should feel almost exhausted after we have done 
uh, outreaches and good things. Why? Because we're called to do that. And sometimes the work of the Lord can be exhausting. Sometimes the work can be hard. Sometimes we say, you know, we, 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 we wonder, man, you know, is this thing ever going to end? Is it worth doing? But I'm here to tell you everything we do that God calls us to do will ultimately be worth doing. It's all worth doing, regardless of how tired it makes you. I've known over the years when we've done joy night, when joy night has been done and I'm heading home, I'm telling you, I'm exhausted. Every part of my body hurts. Or when we do an outreach of some kind and you work hard to do it. This was a church that was dedicated I'm telling you, God is looking for some dedicated people to the kingdom of God in this hour we live in. But we've made the house of God a drive-by. Come on, y'all. Have it your way at Burger King. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce, special sauce, don't upset us. Right? Isn't that how the commercial used to go? Y'all remember the old Burger King commercial? Have it your way at Burger King. I think it was Burger King, unless that was the Big Mac, and I got my jingle messed up. But that's how we treat the body of Christ. It's a drive-by place. God's looking for some dedicated people, some people that'll roll their sleeves up and say, God, whatever it takes to win a city, whatever it takes to win a region, an area, whatever it takes to minister to people who need God, I'm willing to do it to the point of exhaustion. It was a dedicated church. It was a church that was committed and dedicated to the things of God. They had a dedication. They were pressed to their limits. They served with their whole hearts. And it was a good church. Listen, could you imagine that church, the persecution that they faced in the city of Ephesus and the culture of their day? I'm telling you, it was a lot worse than today. We're only beginning to see the intimidation that is coming toward the church in this hour. They lived in the midst of it, but yet still served God. It was a city full of wickedness, but yet they pressed through. And they serve with their whole hearts. Three, they were a determined church. Look what the scripture says. You have persevered and have had patience. You have persevered and have had patience. In the diagnosis of this church, we see that they were determined. There was a perseverance in them. They were not going to give up. They were not going to quit. And it said that they served with perseverance. They served. And we see that they had patience. Verse 2 tells us they had patience when they served. And verse 3 said they had patience in suffering when they suffered. Verse 2 says, I know your works and your labor. And it tells that, and your patience when they served. And then we see later in verse 3, it says, And you have persevered with patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. In other words, under suffering and persecution, they still served. They were determined to get the gospel out there. They were determined to finish the race, to do what they were called to do. 
Their patience had endured and maintained them. In other words, the word means a patience in moving forward. It was a patience that allowed them to move forward. Do we have that kind of patience this morning? Do we have patience in serving? Do we have patience in the service and where we say we're going to serve and do it? I'm going to teach that class whether one shows up or whether 25 shows up. I'm going to, I'm going to share Christ whether one hear it or whether 10,000 hear it. Do we have patience to serve, to do for others what they can't do for themselves? Do we have patience in suffering? Are you willing to take on the ridicule and take on some of the persecution that comes with standing in this hour for Christ? Y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm telling you there's an hour where the church is going to be targeted. There's a congressman in Illinois that's putting a bill forward in Illinois, for the state of Illinois, that declares that any, any minister that does not marry or does not acquiesce to what the state requires them when it comes to moral, whether they marry gays and lesbians, if they don't marry them, then they will lose their right to hold spiritual office. Their churches will be fined and they will lose their tax exempt. Now this is just the beginning. It's a small thing, but I'm here to tell you, if the Lord tarries in the coming days, you're going to see in the days to come, this is not just going to be a state thing, this will be a national thing. But are we willing to stand in the midst of it? Are we going to have the perseverance and the patience in the midst of that suffering to say, the world says this, but Jesus says this. I stand on God's side. I even stand on God's side against myself. Cluddy always used to tell me and say, you know, sometimes you just got to take God's side against yourself. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good word. You ought to write that in your Bible. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit wants to change you. It was a dedicated church. They were dedicated and committed in perseverance. Acts 19 tells you of the fierce opposition they face, the hatred and the spies, but they did not give up. They persevered. They were filled with God and still remained strong. It was a disciplined church. It was a disciplined church. We read in verse 2. That they did not bear any evil. He said that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they were apostles. This was a disciplined church. They would not tolerate evil in it. And they, they, expressed, they expressed church discipline where there needed to be. They were a church that would not tolerate immorality in the midst of them. They would not tolerate evil coming in the midst of the body and spreading throughout the congregation. See, they were patient in their service. They were patient in their suffering, but they were, but they were, but they were not patient when it came to evil in the midst of the congregation. They were a disciplined church. 
They were a church that stood for truth and righteousness and did not waver one bit. They were a discerning church. The scripture said they, taste, they tested those who said they are apostles and were not. What this is in reference to in the early church, there would be those who would claim to be church leaders and they would claim to be apostles that were sent by the twelve. They would come to a church and say, we were sent by, by John or we were sent by this apostle. We've come here to help rule and we were sent here by them. They were able to discern who those were. They were able to discern who those that were liars were. That those apostolic liars who tried to come into the body, and then once they got in, they tried to release their crazy doctrine on the body. But they were a discerning church. I think the body of Christ has lost a lot of discernment. I think we've lost the ability to really discern somewhat right and wrong and even err in Scripture. Sometimes we just accept anything. Doesn't matter what they're preaching. We just accept it and receive it. But a church that was dedicated was a church that was disciplined, a church that was dynamic, a church that was determined. But here's the thing. They were also a church that was declining. You say, how could a church have so many good attributes, but yet it was declining? How could that church decline? Well, verse 4 tells us the beginning of their decline. It said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. See, there was, outwardly, they were a modeled church. Outwardly, they were a church that we all would admire. But as Jesus began to look on the inside of this church, he began to see something about themselves. Jesus saw. He saw past all of it. And he said to this church, you have heart trouble. You've gotten heart trouble. You're doing all of these outward good works. But you've fallen from your early heights of devotion to Christ. You have fallen in love. You had fallen in love with Him. But now you've fallen out of love with Him. You say, well, how do they do these works? How do they do these great works, but yet their heart be fallen away in love with God? How do you do ministry? Like any organization does. You can, you, can, you can be an organization that does good works and not love God. You can be an organization. You can, you can even be a ministry and not have a relationship with Jesus. You can even do ministry work. You can go through the motions what Jesus says is, you're doing good works, but here's what I see. I see the fact that you've lost your first love. 
What's he talking about when he says first love? It's in reference to a devotion to Christ so often characterized by new believers. It's a fervent, it's the it's, it's exciting, unhibited, open display, honeymoon love for Jesus. Does anybody know what that's like? Does anybody know what that, that inhibited, fervent fire that you had when you got saved and you gave your life to Jesus, that uninhibited passion that you have, that you lived openly, that was like being on a honeymoon with Jesus? Do you remember those early days of your life when there was nothing going to keep you from Bible study. Nothing was going to keep you from praying. Nothing was going to keep you from the Word. Nothing was going to keep you from church. Nothing was going to keep you from being committed to Christ. It's those that are so in love with Him. Those that are not ashamed of who He is. You know why it's important for a church to be a soul-winning church? Because you know new believers bring excitement to the body of Christ. New believers bring an excitement and a fresh love to the body of Christ. We see an expression of abandonment to God. And what happened in this church is that they began to lose their first love. In the midst of doing great works of ministry, which were legitimate, they lost their passion and love for God. And I'm here to tell you, there are a lot of churches in our nation that are doing great works for God. But I'm here to tell you, much of the church has lost its affection for Jesus. We've lost the majesty of who he is. We've lost the awe of who he is. Do we really realize who we serve this morning? We serve a resurrected Savior that defied death, hell, and the grave and sits on a throne today in the midst of us this morning. There should be an affection for Him that you wake up every day thanking Him for life, thanking Him for freedom. How many are thankful you don't have to wake up in the sin nature that you was in when before you found Jesus? Praise God. Hallelujah. How many are thankful you're not bound to the same old addictions you used to have? The same old yesterdays. But you've been given a new song. You've been given a new heart and a new life this morning. We've lost our expression for God. We've lost how to express that love for God. The message says it like this. Or the way that Bible says it like this. You no longer love me like you did at first. That's a heavy word right there. That is what Jesus is saying to this church. You no longer love me like you did in the beginning. Is the Holy Spirit saying that to anybody this morning other than me? You don't love me like you used to. I want to tell you all, when I first got saved, the first year I got saved, I mean, my family was ready to lock me up. They thought I had literally lost my ever-living mind. I mean, there were talks of interventions. <laughs> They're right, I did lose my mind. Therefore, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I did lose my mind. 
I got the mind of Christ. And I didn't have much tact, but I had passion for God. And I wasn't ashamed of Jesus. But I wasn't going to live in a world of sin and promote my sin openly and not have my life changed by the Savior and not promote my new life by Him. Why are we ashamed of it? Why are we ashamed to talk Jesus? Why are we ashamed of Christ? Why are we ashamed of the things that he did in our lives? Why are we ashamed of the newness of life? G. Campbell Morgan says, first love defies analogy. In other words, what he's saying is, There's something about the first love of salvation that you can't measure it on a scale. You can't can't measure it by a ruler. You can't encompass it with a math formula. It's worship unabandoned. I worshiped unabandonedly. Every time I got in the presence of God, I gave him everything because he done everything for me. He said, I have something against you. How many know that we ought to tremble when Jesus says, I have something against you? (laughs) I don't know if we should just tremble. I think we should fall on our faces. When Jesus says he has something against us, it should make us fall on our faces toward God. Vance Hadner, the old great Baptist preacher, He said this, people can be straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. If we can't love him fiercely, then we can't serve him faithfully. If we can't love him and have fire in our bones and in our heart, then we'll struggle to serve him faithfully. It's the fervency of our love for God that creates this passion for God. I want us to see this last thing this morning, and this is where I wanted to get to. He gives an antidote. He, if this was the end of the message, the challenge of this scripture, I'm glad that it doesn't end here. I'm glad that it doesn't finish here. And maybe you're here this morning and you've fallen out of love with Jesus. Maybe your love for him has grown cold. Where you used to be warm. Maybe you've become a little desensitized to the passions of God. Finally, I want you to see this morning the demand that Jesus put on this church. He gave them a roadmap back. He gave them a roadmap back to first love. The first thing that he said is found in verse 5. It said, remember therefore where you have fallen. Remember therefore where you had fallen from. From where you had fallen. Restoration always begins with remembering. 
Restoration always begins with remembering. So this morning, let's go back and take a snapshot of the early days that you had with him. Go back and remember the early days of giving your life to Jesus and what transpired in your life. Go back to those first few months that the flame of life burned inside of you. And nothing, you were going to let nothing extinguish it. He said, remember, go back. Go back as a snapshot to when you witnessed, to when you brought others to church, when you were leading others to Jesus. When you would bring people to church and when someone would come forward that you had been ministering to, that you had brought the service, the joy that found and the influence that you had on some. That you remember that you trusted him even with the simplest things in your life. It didn't matter what it was. Your trust was in him, remember. The word remember here in the Greek, it's a powerful word. It's in the Greek, it's in the imperative. The imperative is present with the meaning. It means not just remember once, but it's, it means to keep on remembering. Don't let it slip away. Let it hold on to your mind. I think that there's something that happens in us when we begin to think back where we were before we found Jesus and when we found Christ and the newness of life. We should always hold in our mind and remember, continue to continue to remember what it was when we first fell in love with Jesus. How many can remember that this morning? How many can say, I know what happened in my heart. I know what changed in me. I used to get up in the mornings and pray, you'd say. I'd read my word. I'd read every devotional I could. I talked about Jesus with everyone. If you were around me, you were talking about Jesus. I left my chameleon life aside. See, that's how you've lost your first love. Some of us have become chameleons. That whatever group we're with, that's who we are. Come on, y'all. Let's just be real. We need to get back the first love. That where, listen, when I got saved, I lost all my friends. Every one of them. You know why? Because if they were going to be around me, they were going to hear the good news of what Jesus can do. Well, that, those, that didn't last very long. I lost them very quickly. Don't get around that Shane. He's crazy. He got a bad batch, man. I know he did. <laughs> he got some bad reefer. <laughs> I didn't stop getting high. I just started getting high on the most high. Huh? Now I'm high every day. Come on, y'all. How many are addicted to his presence? How many loves a good high on Jesus? Huh? I didn't quit drinking, I just switched brands. <laughs> and I didn't quit dancing, I just switched partners, praise God. Hallelujah. How many are thankful? 
Glory to God. Remember. Hold in your mind. Hold in your mind. Number two. Not only remember, but we are to repent. Look what he says there in verse 5. He says, repent and do the first works. In other words, the word repentance there means to have change of mind, to go in opposite direction, to head back. It is not, it is a, it is a willful choice. It is an act of a will. It is to head back. It is to willfully turn. People say, well, I try, I try, I try. I'm here to tell you there's something about the human will. I'm t- you have a part in your deliverance. You participate in your deliverance. You have to choose to want to be free. You have to choose to want to live righteously. You have to choose to walk in purity and holiness. You have to choose to turn toward him and walk toward Jesus. There is a willful there is a willful act that takes place when we repent. When we repent and turn back and begin to walk back toward God and head back to him, the closer we get, he begins to renew that first love in us. In other words, John Stott said it like this. He said to repent and to turn back from all known sin. What would happen if we did that? What would happen if we would turn back and repent and say, God, I want want my first love back again. I'm going to willfully turn back to you. And what's it, it say? To go back and do what? Do the first works you did. Go back and do what you were doing when you got saved. Go back and renew those first works. You know, I, I've had a song on my heart all week this week. And I don't know if some of you remember, remember this old song or not. But I had a, a choir in Arkansas, in our church in Arkansas, they would sing this song all the time. And I loved it when they sang it. Matter of fact, it would just get me choked up. And I don't know if you heard it. It's a praise song they used to sing years ago. We will remember. I don't know if you ever heard it. We will remember. We will remember. We will remember the works of your hands. We will stop and give you praise. For great is thy faithfulness. Well, there's a voice, there is a a verse there um, that I love. It says, I still remember the day you saved me, the day I heard you call out my name. You said you loved me and would never leave me, and I've never been the same. And I've been singing that chorus all week. How many remember the day he saved you? How many remember the day he called out your name? He said he loved you. You said you'd love him. And he said he'd never leave you. And from then, you've never been the same. We have to repent and return to do first works. How do you get your first love back? You remember. How do you get your first love back? You repent and you begin to do the first works. Pastor Adam, if you'd come. And finally, you repeat. You go back and you begin to repeat what you used to do. 
In verse 5, Jesus gives a sober warning to this church that had lost its first love. And I believe it's a warning for us all this morning. I believe it's a warning for the body of Christ. It says this. It says, go back, repent, and do your first works. Repeat, or else I will come to you quickly. And what did he say he'd do? He would remove the candlestick from its place unless you repent. He would remove your influence. He'll remove the light that you are. He'll remove the influence that you once had. I don't know about you, but I want my light to shine. I want this church's light to shine. I want us to continue to be, to continue to do the works of the Lord, but I want us to do it with a fervency and a fire and a love for God. Stand with me if you would this morning. I don't know what your flame is like this morning. I don't know if you've lost your first love. John wrote this 30 years after the church of Ephesus was founded. Church history tells us that the church of Ephesus ended up dying. The Bible, well, scholars tell us that when John cut off the island of Patmos, he spent his last days in Ephesus. They would prop him up in the church there. They would prop him up. And each time he was propped up to preach or to speak there at Ephesus, he would say these things. He would say, little children love one another. I believe it was a prophetic warning for a church that started out so well. You know, sometimes we can get so caught up in serving, we can stop loving Jesus like the heart of a new believer. That church's light went out, and anyone that came to find that church would find that it was not there no more. There's an old saying, a man said, I was on the way, I was on my way to the Savior and ran into serving and got into serving and never got to the Savior. That could be some of us. On our way to the Savior, we ran into serving. We got serving and we never ran into the Savior. We have to carve out time in our life for Him. That's something as a pastor, as a staff members, we have to be careful of because we can be so busy serving, we forget to love Him and forget to find the place of continually to fall in love with Him. I'm telling you last week when I sat across the table from Frank Summerall and I could hear the passion in his heart 
I mean, he talked just like his dad talked. It was like Brother Summerall was talking. And I could hear that passion of love. He's 75 years old, and he's more active now than he's ever been in his life. I don't want to be 75 and have to be propped up. (laughs) I want the passion of God to flow through my life all my days, don't you? The way you keep it is to continue to love God and find love for Him and fall in love with Jesus. I can best illustrate it by reading this story to you and the closing with this this morning. You know, there's a scripture in the Songs of Solomon that says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying this morning. Arise, my love, come away with me. There's an invitation. The Holy Spirit has given you an invitation this morning for first love. I want to read this story to you. I don't know if you are familiar with G. Campbell Morgan. He's a great theologian. I have a lot of his books. He's one of the best theologians you could read after. But he tells this story in one of his books. G. Campbell Morgan tells of a friend, tells of a friend of his who had a little daughter that he loved dearly. They were great friends, the father and the daughter, and they were always together. But one day there seemed to come an estrangement on the child's part. The father could not get her company as he formerly did. She seemed to shun him. If he wanted her to walk with him, she always had something else to do. The father was grieved and could not understand what the trouble was. His birthday came, and in the morning, his daughter came into his room. Her face was radiant with love and handed him a present. And opened the, he opened the parcel, and he found a pair of exquisitely made slippers. The father said, my child, it was very good of you to buy me such lovely slippers. She said, oh, father, she said, I didn't buy them. I made them for you. Looking at her, he said, I think I understand now. What long has been a mystery to me is this is what you have been doing for the last three months. Yes, she said, but how did you know how long I had been working on them? He said, because for three months I have missed your company and your love. And I have wanted you with me, but you have been too busy. These are beautiful slippers. But next time, buy your present for me and let me have you all the days. I would rather have my child herself than anything she could make for me. Those of you who are here this morning, just so, who are in danger of being so busy in the Lord's work that we cannot be enough with the Lord and His love's fellowship. He may say to us, I like your works, your toils, your service, but I miss the love you gave me at first. 
there's a real danger that we get so busy in striving to be active Christians, so absorbed in our tasks and duties, our efforts to bring others into the church, that Christ himself shall be less loved and shall miss our communing with him. Loyalty to Christ means first devotion. Has Christ really the highest place in your heart? Is it not your work that he wants most? It's not your work that he wants most. It is you. It is beautiful to do the things for him. But it is more beautiful to make a home for him in your hearts. How many know he wants more of us than he wants what we do for him? That's my challenge to you this morning. If you just want to make a fresh declaration of your love for him this morning, won't you come and find a place at this altar this morning and just begin to renew the first love that you had with him and for him? Just come and say, Jesus, I want to renew my relationship with you. My, I want you to touch me. Let there be fresh love that comes on my heart. Let there be a fresh change in me. Let me just say this this morning. Ministry can never be sustained by just outward effort. To fulfill the work of the Lord, there has to be a love of the people for him. I want us to fall in love with Jesus. I want that to be the most evident thing about this body of believers. I know we want to love people, and we do. But I want people to say, man, that church loves God. And people love Jesus. And I want to fall in love with Jesus again this morning. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Christ. You've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. I want to give you an opportunity to fall in love with Jesus this morning. Is there anybody here that would like to receive Christ as your Savior this morning? Maybe you've never asked him into your heart. Maybe you have before and you've kind of walked away from God. You'd like to renew. You'd like to come and repeat your first love again and give your life back to Jesus. If that's you this morning, would you come? Is there anybody here this morning? Just slip up your hand and say, Pastor, I want to rededicate my life to Christ. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to start falling in love with Him again. Anybody? Anybody? I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I did a funeral recently of a young man that to his dying day would not receive Christ. And right before he died, he had... He had death tears. You know what a death tear is? A death tear is when you get, a, you get a glimpse of eternity. He died without Christ and he died with terror on his face. 
He had many opportunities to receive Jesus, but continued to reject him. To fall in love with the one that created him and made him. Let me tell you, the church is not perfect. This church is not perfect. But my prayer is, I hope someday somebody can say this church has always loved Jesus. Has always loved Christ. Father, I pray for these that are at the altar this morning, that have come. I pray that you'll light a fire again in them, a fresh fire. Let them begin to return. Let them remember what it was like in their life of sin before you came into their life. Let them remember and continue to remember what you've done for them. I pray, Lord, that as we come, as I have come this morning, with a heart of repentance, forgive me, God. There are many ways I've left my first love. Many expressions and many things that I used to do that I no longer do because my heart has grown cold. I don't want my heart to be cold anymore. Light a fire in my soul that I can't contain and I can't control. Light a fire down inside of me that consumes everything I am. Lord, wake me up again with people on my heart to pray for that are lost. Wake me in the night with the names of those who need prayer. Let my personal time with you be greater than it's ever been. Let me get away with you and come away under your garden and unto your place to fellowship with you in a greater way. Lord, just as I remember the fresh love when I met my wife and that fresh love before we were married of the courting and the being together and the cherished time of doing everything I could to be with her and around her. Renew that love for you. Renew the romance of my heart for Jesus. We pray you seal it this morning in our hearts and in those that are at this altar. Let there be a renewing, a fresh change that takes place. A fresh passion again. Let your fire flow through this congregation. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.